Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Lindsay Callahan on the show. Lindsay is the director of the United Way of Fresno and Madera. She has that 10,000-foot view on difficult issues that is so helpful in thinking about the ways uh, for our community to move forward. This was such a great conversation, and we cover such a wide range of topics, it's difficult to even try to summarize it right here. One quick note before we get started, we really need some more ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you're listening on that platform, please consider giving us a rating and review. And always, if you'd like to support us financially, you can do that by visiting our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash fresnosbest. Let's go meet Lindsay and Baker will take us there. Politics, religion, culture, art, music, show some respect to the best little city left in the U.S. Fresno's best. Fresno's best. All right. So, um, Lindsay, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Where don't I like to eat in Fresno? You know, Good this answer. is... I, I am definitely one of those people who lives to eat, not eats to live. I love food. So we actually cook at home a lot. Um, I've got three kids and who are have different varying degrees of pickiness. So we tend to eat at home a lot, but we do try to venture out and order locally at least once a week. Um, you know, it's interesting, my sister and I, um, for United Way, we just did a video series on BIPOC-owned businesses. And so we've got, we got to visit some different restaurants in Fresno that some of which we hadn't been to before. And that's kind of what I like. I like trying new things. I also like eating sort of in like a thematic way. So there was a period of time where I was just eating on patios in Fresno before COVID made us all eat on patios. So this was prior to that. So I already know all the good patios. Or, you know, we would go and try to find the places that had the best cocktail craft cocktails so but you know if i'm if i'm ordering out i i kind of default to heirloom because it's just fantastic food and just it just is so so good all the time um but my my kids love butterfish so if they get a choice between pizza and butterfish they choose butterfish um prime 13 i absolutely love and they have a great patio that they've opened since covid that's really awesome so i i love fres the fresno eating scene i think that we have a lot of restaurants that are really good um limelight elbow room annex like we have a whole slew of restaurants to try and and the food truck scene's gotten like incredible too so yeah, there's a lot. And I think Heirloom needs to start sending me money because I they get mentioned so many times like I'm, I, they're no longer getting it for free. Um, so if you if you if you're listening in the future, if you want to hear your name said and not have it edited out, I'll need to start seeing a check. Nice but, I, but I honestly think what what has set Heirloom apart and why people are talking about it is that they have made the transition to to go orders so seamless. And that's just so hard because not not every food item travels well. And that's part of the problem, right? Is there is a tried and true method to getting a hot pizza to my house, right? Um, and there's not a tried and true method to getting Indian food to my house necessarily in the optimal state. And so I think that's part of the thing too, is that heirloom has managed that well, in part because of what they serve. But, you know, I, I, I I'm I, I'm trying to eat other places. See, my issue is I live relatively close to Heirloom, and with a little app, and just right. like just hitting those buttons, and they already saved my order. Those 
Oh, I feel you on that. Like I have a level of laziness on this that comes when I'm ordering food. It's really a challenge. So I'm like, Ooh, heirloom. I just go right in and push the buttons and it's right there. (laughs) Yes. And I, the other thing that I've learned recently is I've learned a lot more about how much or the economics of the Grubhub uh, kind of pulling cash from small businesses. And I didn't realize how endemic that problem was to all of these different apps. And so now I'm just driving all around town to pick up my food. I drove, yeah, I drove almost to, actually we don't call Clovis, Clovis on here anymore. We call it East Fresno. I drove to East Fresno uh, to pick up Thai food that I would have normally like grubtubbed, but it looked like a small place. I didn't want to pull money from it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, It's a weird situation. Yeah, I I feel that, you know, we actually, we usually have a big Christmas party at the end of the year. And this year, of course, couldn't really do that. And so we were going to give everyone Grubhub gift cards. And I was like, oh, I don't know that I can do that. (laughs) Like, I I think I need to go in a different direction here. I know. And it's, it's hard because I, you know, with a lot of these transitions that we're making, you know, I mean, if you go to Whole Foods right now, like you hate shopping there just because there's so many of those rabbits that are wandering the aisles, picking up people's to-go food. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this weird place that we're in where I don't like the results, but I think it's going that way anyway. And right. so it's like, do I support it? Do I not? You know, these ethical decisions are tough. I do think that we've learned so much though about the restaurant business and just the food industry in general during this time that we just didn't, we kind of took for granted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that our defaults, you know, were maybe a little bit more convenient and a little more national change skewed. And now we just know so much more about sort of the the topography of it all. And, and I, I do feel more enlightened from, from all of this, not just the Grubhub stuff, but just, even just the employment side of it and what it takes to change a menu, right? Like whoever even thinks about that, not me. Yes, I know. And I, I mean, I've watched a bunch of those shows. I became obsessed with those uh, shows uh, like the profit and like redo your bar kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And because it was always interesting to me to see like, what is the economics here and how do you guys work? And when they actually broke down like the price margins and like what they're making on plates and stuff, and then if you think, oh, you don't have a TV show helping you make these decisions and they could be just operating in a place where they're making 50 cents a plate, like, like that's, that's scary. And, that's and, and with, I'm sure we can talk about this, but uh, the, the economics of it and then the pandemic mixed together is just made for a nightmare. And it's hard to know what the best move is to support people. Because I know if I really wanted to do the right thing and not just care about the fried chicken plate at heirloom, like my strategy would be to go to the, you know, ethnic restaurant that is not, you know, going to have a fancy menu or, you know, have good to go. But it's, it's hard to balance taste. Right. And you would probably be going downtown and, you know, we'd be getting on the 41 and going trekking down there. Yes. Totally feel you trying to do the right thing. It's a challenge. Yeah. Ethics are not easy. Um, So when I think of the word United way, and this is a weird way to start, but I think of the national football league because as a kid, whenever there was a, I was watching the Super Bowl with my parents or whatever, the playoffs, they would always have some kind of commercial for United Way. So I always thought, oh, cool. United Way is like the nonprofit part of the NFL. That's so nice of them that they do those nice things. And <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of people that think that because of that, all those commercials from the, the aughts and the 90s with the United Way. Um, and so let's just play 
like real dumb question. What is the United Way and um, what was your journey to get involved with them? Sure. So much like you, I did not know a lot about United Way when five years ago when I took this job. Um, I did know that they were affiliated with the National Football League, but we are not actually the National Football League's nonprofit. We it's good to know Our, it's funny because we i get that a lot so you're not the only one there's mm -hmm. and i can see why you would think that um you know we have been united way fresno has been around for 100 years almost um we're coming up on our centennial in a couple of years so we've been around for a long time um we um took on the Madera County um, zip codes right before they hired me. So it's been about six years that we've been covered both counties, which is really an incredible pleasure to serve both counties. So what, what we are, the easiest way to sort of think about our work is our, my job is to help solve the toughest problems in our community. So those problems that no one institution, no matter how many dollars you gave it, would be able to solve. That's sort of where we sit. That doesn't tell you much of anything, but if you kind of want some imagery around it, if you think about the food bank and the domestic violence center and the school district and, and everyone who is, is working in the community and doing direct, direct service as the BRICS, the United Way is really the mortar. So we're what holds it together. We find where the gaps are and we work to fill those gaps. Sometimes that's with money, sometimes that's with expertise, sometimes that's with additional programs or services. It just depends. So we spend a lot of time just watching what is happening in our community, looking at data, watching what our partners are doing, and really coming alongside of our partners and making sure that they have everything that they need to solve those tough, really tough issues. So What's that's what the United Way does. Can you give an example of a gap? So actually, our, our 211 um, is, is a really important place and descriptor of that. So we have all of these different resources, right? So you, you have agencies that are providing all kinds of resources. And if I'm a mom in need and I need food and my electricity bill is going to be cut off and I need to be connected to some kind of um, therapeutic services, mental health services, I would have to go to potentially multiple different places to get to the right place. Our 211 call center fills the gap so that mom only has to call one time and gets referrals to the right place so that she's not traversing the whole county to get all of these services. She's just directed to the right place. So yes. it's a 24 seven helpline. Anyone can call it. We have thousands of resources and it's really a one-stop shop to get to where you need to be. And I, you know, speaking as someone that works for the government, you know, a big incentive we have is to stay in our lane, you know, and it's, it's very simple. We stay in our lane because if you go outside your lane, you're saying, oh, this, this, this new lane I've entered is now within my jurisdiction and my job description doesn't say that's my lane. And right. so you might call someone at some government agency and they, they maybe know how to connect you to that other person. But if they do that, they're opening up Pandora's box to guess what? We're going to connect you to that person again. And then suddenly I have more work. And it's unfortunate that that's kind of the way, I mean, you know, government like the DMV has been mocked for things like this for a long time. 
Um, but it's true that people are incentivized to kind of stay in their own lane. In some right. Ways. If for nothing else, but for efficiency. Right. 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 <laughs> that, that right. There are a lot of times traversing all of this can take hours. Right. That and, and you think about something like it, like um, like the vaccines right now. I'm, I'm hearing from a lot of people like I'm spending all of this time trying to help my um, my parents get to the right place to get get vaccines. Well, we're working with the county to try to make sure that there are more centralized points so that you don't have to go to 50 different websites to find it. You can just go through one single portal and get to where you need to be. Everyone do right, like just stick to doing your own job because that's what you're good at. That's what you're trained at, trained to do. And then you don't really have to get involved in the rest of that stuff because there's a place to go to get the rest of it. That doesn't have to be your jurisdiction. So the kind of idea is that it's, it's hub making or, mm -hmm. or central location. So, yes. you know, you can be, you can step back and say, okay, I see the landscape here of need and I see you know, because it's, it's, it's so easy to be siloed, you know, I mean, I, I work in public education, and it's so easy to be siloed in my particular domain. Um, and when I have to work, you know, wh whether it's unfortunately making some kind of mandate reporting call or whatever, like I'm feeling like I'm stepping into a whole world I'm not familiar with. Mm -hmm. And to have someone that can go, okay, here's, here's your connection points. That's very helpful. Right. And you're really speaking a lot another language too. I, like, sometimes we have a whole alphabet soup that we're we're talking about. And so even the the energy that it takes to even shift between the jurisdictions can be pretty significant. So, you know, obviously part of the issue is the comp the complexity of government. I mean, that's mm -hmm. kind of part of the issue as well and how you know grants work how money is distributed i mean there's it seems like there's a lot going on and it's it's you know we we need people that can be that interpreter for the rest of us when we need yeah. help but what is your uh, what's your what was your personal journey to working with united way so that's actually really interesting because i feel i've i've felt for a long time that this job is sort of taking the best of the pieces of the jobs that I totally loved in my career, that I was really good at these pieces that I was passionate about and kind of puts it into one. Um, my, my work experience is one around public-private partnerships. So to your point about sort of this whole thing about how government works and needing to kind of come alongside government, that's been a big part of what I've done both. At I the, love me some PPPs. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So I've done it at the state level, um, primarily with the Department of Education, um, but also do it quite a bit. I've done it quite a bit on the regional and local level. I love it. Um, I really do believe that government can change lives and that private partners when helping government can totally like just amplify the effectiveness of government. So talk, I've done- Let me pause you real quick. Let's talk sure. about what exactly a public private partnership, because it's an important thing and it's, it, people don't realize how many things happen in our society because there is this relationship. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think that the, I think you're totally right. Um, and private agencies tend to, especially in the types of public-private partnerships that I've been a part of, kind of tend to sort of be in, in the wings on this type of stuff. Like they're not front and center on, on the work that they're doing. So I was trained up on this from um, a foundation perspective. I worked for about 20 foundations that 
really, it was super interesting because they had all of these really good ideas that they had tested and funded, which is really the role of philanthropy is to, is to take risks and to test things and to be innovative. And they wanted to take it to scale. And even though it looks like philanthropy has a lot of money, in comparison to what government has, it's like almost nothing. So to actually get their programs to scale, they had to partner with government agencies to invest then in these sort of proven pilots. And um, one of them was the Healthy Start program, which is wraparound services that are um, usually school at place-based, but usually on school campuses. I was working in, in after school and taking after school programs to scale and really trying to work on that. And so the role that we played was we brought a little bit of money to the table that was super flexible, which is a really cool thing because people think, well, like government's got all this money, but frankly, government's got a lot of money that can only be spent on specific things. And so when we came to the table with some money, it really leveraged big change and leverage big differences in in what we what we did and then we really pushed on issues like race equity and this was this was in the early 2000s so we really pushed on issues like equity and diversity um, uh, monitoring and evaluation really proving that things were actually working but and and not recreating the wheel um, because yeah. government agencies tend to have very short attention spans and like to create new things. And so investing in something in the longer term was also kind of part of the, the piece too. So it was like becoming family. Um, we really like, we moved in, in tandem and worked really closely together. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm going to go a little off topic here because you, because I've just, that's the way my brain works. And I was thinking about what you're saying. And I was thinking about, I've been thinking a lot of, about overhead recently mm -hmm. um, because I listened uh, to this interview um, with the guy that runs Coinbase, which is one of those crypto companies or whatever. And one of the things he talked about, he was talking about the, these ideas to use cryptocurrency to get money transfers to people more mm -hmm. easily. And mm -hmm. his whole response was, well, it's because, you know, nonprofits spend all this money on overhead and then it doesn't actually get to the people. And I, you know, I hear that a lot about nonprofits and foundations, like overhead is some, you know, is some uh, evil thing that we have to rid ourselves of. You know, I hear it too with, with college administration, you know, cause there's these people that say administrators in colleges, they make so much money. And, and, but then at the same time, those same damn people are like, well, we want a wellness center on campus. We want an equity center on campus. We want all these things. And so it, it you know, I, I don't know where this came from, but I'm curious um, if, if you can defend overhead. Can I defend overhead? This is actually, it's a really relevant de debate in, in nonprofit land. Um, there was a time when you sort of like walked into the room ready to say like, we have very low overhead and like we spend all of your dollars in direct service. Well, if I'm spending all of your dollars in direct service, that means that I'm not paying an accountant. I'm not paying anyone any, like the lawyers. I'm not actually writing checks. So it's, it's interesting because United Way's role, this is a really good example, is United Way's role has historically was about pooling funds. So we were founded on the idea of community chess. 
you put your dollar in, I put my dollar in, and together, like, it all makes a bigger difference. And so our, our job, our whole job was basically writing checks to other agencies, raising the money and writing other checks. People, people's understanding of what it takes to, number one, raise a dollar is that it shouldn't take any money to raise a dollar, right? Yeah. But how does that dollar actually get raised if I'm not paying a staff person to come to you and say, can I have your dollar? Um, and I'm assuming you want someone who is of, of relative high quality, so that costs even more. And then I'm just assuming that you want a letter back saying that you actually gave me a dollar. That costs something on top of that. And then on the side where and now I'm writing checks for you and you've said, I want to give my dollar to five different agencies. So now I'm cutting five different checks to five different agencies and doing the accounting of all of that money to the IRS and keeping it all legal. And that costs no overhead, right? Like how does that, it doesn't even, the math doesn't work out on that. So when, when we start, we, we did ourselves a disservice by buying into that idea that nonprofits shouldn't be charging any overhead. Because if you want quality, if you want us to be legal, if you actually want to be acknowledged correctly, you know, it, everyone wants it to be shiny, but no one wants to pay my PG&E bill. Well, somebody's <laughs> like, it's got to get paid somehow. Exactly. And I feel like that, that was a trend for a while with like the website GiveWell and some of these sites where they use the metric of like what percentage of your money, like Oxfam, you know, what percentage of your money is actually getting to people versus like a much more sophisticated metric would be well percentages aside what what is that overhead paying for and what's the quality of that overhead exactly but it's but it's it's hard because you know you you see the spca commercial and the dogs and i just want to adopt them all or i just want all <laughs> of my money to go to that little pomeranian and i you know it it's 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 an emotional thing you know and i think and I think there is this Silicon Valley like mentality of, oh, we can just automate the hell out of this. And then we don't even need overhead because we'll just give people the money. But then the, obviously the question comes up, well, who, how much, what for, you know, yeah. like, like where, you know, obviously if things are completely automated, that's the, ne the first step to corruption and, you know, weird outcomes. And anyway, I, I just brought and that it's up. Also it the, there's also a distinction between charity and philanthropy. And this overhead conversation kind of meets that as well as the automation piece of it. And if you want to do charity, like that's easy, right? So go drop off some pies. If you really want to do philanthropy, it's a, it's a much more, it's a much longer term and probably riskier like endeavor, but you get more out of it. Philanthropy is about really investing in a longer term solution that isn't about me feeling good about the Pomeranian. It's actually about me figuring out, like if I invested this much more money into this system, maybe that Pomeranian is never even at risk. Like how do, you, how do we get there as a community? That should be our goal, not to just like pour the dog food out and call it a day. Right, and there is distinctions. I don't wanna make it seem like either of us are thinking that they're all charities are the same, all overhead is the same. No. You know, me giving money to Oxfam or me giving money to, you know, some wacko 
charity in the backwoods that's raising money for a tree squirrel specifically this one tree squirrel and you know i mean so there there is a distinction right and between good and bad overhead in some ways right sure sure and so. people need to do their research right i mean people need to make sure that they know where their money is going and you do have to do your research and yeah and that's why and that's you know the other part of my background has been because i worked with the foundations when i was in sacramento um, because I went to UC Davis and then I stayed in Sacramento, worked at the Capitol and then went to work for the foundations. So I have this interesting kind of like policy plus philanthropy, especially like Bay Area philanthropy kind of an experience very early in, in my career that helped shape a lot of how I think about things and how I think about change in our community, you know, that I understand that the state capital can change lots of policies and can advocate and we can advocate for a lot of money. And at the same time, you can leverage philanthropy to even make that even bigger. And so kind of those two things working together is where I think is kind of the perfect spot for United Way to like rest itself. Like this is our, this is our happy place. And you know, the other thing is too, right? Like you can spend a bunch of money on something like, you know, you can, I can say, you know what, I'm going to build the biggest, baddest house on the San Andreas fault. And I'm just going to build the, I'm just going to spend a million dollars on cement to really make the foundation, but I'm on a fault line. Right? right. And so it feels like with a lot of these issues too, where government just throws money at a problem, you know, but it's on a fault line. They don't think, well, maybe we should just move the house. Right. Um, and that it's such a tricky thing because, you know, often we're, it's like the virtue signaling thing, right? We're incentivized to just want to say, oh, we spent X million number of dollars on this problem, you know, and that comes back to like the smart approach to things. And it's tricky. It's tricky because we're incentivized to do things maybe in a not smart way, but in a grand way that everybody sees. Yep, exactly. Yes, this is advertiser content. But I have a simple question for you. Have you ever been concerned about someone breaking into your barn and stealing your ATVs? Have you ever had a sleepless night worried about whether your chainsaws were safe inside of your shed? In all seriousness, we all need insurance because we're irrational and we assume that bad things only happen to that neighbor with the particular political signs on his front lawn. Acts of God, so I'm told, are arbitrary and bipartisan. So that leads us to our first sponsor, Debuto and Defendus Insurance Brokers. Trusted for over 60 years, Debuto and Defendus Insurance Brokers specialize in business and ag insurance. With the changing landscape of COVID-19 and how it affects your business, they support their clients with timely information, safety training, and have a whole claims department to ensure things go smoothly. Interested in seeing if your business is covered? Contact Carl Thiessen at 559-648-2122. And now back to our show. So let's talk about uh, the focus of your organization in Fresno and Madera. So what are the, I mean, obviously there's probably uh, a lot of pandemic related things that we could talk about um, because that is the crisis. Um, but um, Maybe, maybe, maybe talk about what were some of the things you were focused on before the pandemic arrived. Um, and then we'll, we'll talk um, yeah. about Yeah, so it, it's been a pretty interesting journey um, for our agency, kind of finding where 
we need to play that mortar role, right? So where we need to fill in. Because sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not so obvious. Um, and when, when I took over the organization five years ago, you know, we were doing a lot of stuff, but it was really hard to pin down one, what our impact was and one and two, what we were really about. So it became very clear to my board of directors and our, our staff that our focus needed to be on working families, that our sweet spot on all of this was working families and supporting working families and more, you know, even more specifically supporting or eliminating the idea of working poor. So our focus has really shifted from being kind of like a general agency who does good, um, which I, I still like that idea. Like it's nice that people just have like a general sense that we do good things. I love it um, because you know, like you can't buy that branding. <laughs> like, yeah, no, it's, that's great. But you know, we really needed to be focused on moving the needle in specific ways and particularly around wealth generation and closing the wealth gap um and and what does that look like well like i'm not sure that any of us actually know that's why you know that's why it's a, a problem for united way to help to to solve where we can take what is already there which is a lot of really good work in in the community and consider how we can elevate it to the next level so that we are closing not just an income gap but a wealth gap like imagine if we can do that how much our community would would benefit and what we wouldn't need in our community anymore you know so that's what our focus is and it looks like a lot of different things but the big general thing that it looks like is something that we call prosperity coaching which is an idea the idea that we all have like this pathway to travel and a lot of times figuring out something like a home mortgage or even figuring out how to navigate a school system for your, on behalf of your kids or figuring out the next step in your career those are sort of like big things that people need support with and there are lots of their resources out there but maybe i don't know exactly where to find the resources so it's really like a, a guide by the side mentorship coaching experience where we are really trying to put all of the big things that we know are important from basic services right like do you have food in your cupboard to social networks do you have connections in the community and make that the the goal of of the prosperity coaching work it's it's not necessarily anything new because there are lots of people doing case management type work in our community what it's doing though is making sure that you're hitting all of the aspects that need to be hit on on this to actually help a family get to abundance yeah okay all this confession time so I do this just because I'm a middle school teacher and I have to, you know, <laughs> keep myself familiar with, with things. So I spend a little time on TikTok. So what? Um, but I, I don't know if you're familiar with this service, but um, when you flip through, you get such interesting things. You get some horrible dancing, which we, can not, we don't need to talk about. But what you get a lot is like financial advice. I've noticed um, that I'm I'm very new to TikTok. Like I'm it's just, so interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of these guys that are in Lamborghinis or whatever, and they're like quick quick ways to get rich. Mm -hmm. And there there is like a like a, a surplus of all this kind of information about like how to buy a house on a like a with no money down and then mm -hmm. resell it in ten weeks. But there's not a lot of like really simple like 
here's the form to fill out, which is not, I mean, obviously it's the reason it's not there is it's not sexy, right? It's not, uh, not cool, but I, you know, I mean, it seems like what you're describing is that there's a lack of knowledge and a lack of, there's again, going back to this hub, there's not a place where people learn these basic life skills, I guess. Life and, skills is a good way to put it, Jordan. And it's, it, it, does, it seems like the school system should do something about this. I mean, it seems like a lot of these things. This is a middle school just, teacher. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, you, it, what, what are we talking about? Siloed, right? I, I just see right. my world as the solution. <laughs> um, but it seems like some of these things, like getting a mortgage, opening a bank account, it seems like that's something that school systems should provide. Obviously, you know, not everyone finishes in the school system. And then a lot of people, you know, it's, a, it's one thing to learn about getting a mortgage that's another thing to actually getting a mortgage right right you know? and i will say we have really great ed educating educator leaders in our area who are implementing a lot of this like a, what is called adulting um both in high school curriculum as well as in um college curriculum as well so the system is seeing that there's a need for this and there's trying to make it much, trying to actually take it to scale. What that doesn't really buy you though is exactly what you said that, so then when I get my check <laughs> and I need to put this much aside, like how do I do that? How do I even open a bank account? Can I have two, two savings accounts? Can I, so some of the logistics of it, that's a piece of it. So that's like the basic financial literacy part, but there's also a mindset that goes along with all of this as well. And just understanding that, you know, when, when we post jobs that are entry-level jobs, our social media hits shoot up exponentially. It's almost impossible. It takes months for me to hire a director in my shop. And some of that is actually about mindset and, and, and preparedness for a career versus a jobby job, right? And so this isn't just about financial literacy. It's about sort of like your whole life and where you're going with that and finding your passion and all of that kind of stuff that sounds very touchy feely. And we just feel like just get a job to pay your bills so that we're not supporting you as a society. Okay, cool. Like we tried that. It didn't work. People actually need to be in higher paying jobs. We need to help them figure out how to get there. And we need to stabilize families, right? Because we, we, we're not no one is immune from like sort of like family dysfunction so family stabilization is a big thing things like domestic violence and and addiction are very real like there's so many things within us that in our lives that need to sort of be like worked out just having basic financial literacy is is only a is a piece of it and there are lots of pieces of it right what 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 issues i mean beyond obviously the economic repercussions, what issues, and obviously the death that we're experiencing uh, from the pandemic have been heightened um, that you've seen, and, and where are you guys trying to lean into those areas? Yeah, it's interesting because our with our 211 line, we can track the data pretty closely, and um, we're, we're seeing, depending on the time, we're seeing either really incredibly high need for um, food, um, food calls about food pantries, but also a lot of insecurity around housing in general. Um, so a lot of people who are either looking for housing or need help with um, housing payments. It's changed like as 
help has come, so it kind of ebbs and flows. Um, and we're also seeing a lot of different needs um, based on race and ethnicity. So we track that really closely too, so that we're not just generalizing about, you know, this is all that's happening in Fresno Madera because it, it does tend to break down differently for race and ethnicity. So what we're trying to do is one, um, make sure that we have really good data on our 211 so that we can get people to the right place. Two, we have a COVID relief fund that we started a week after, less than a week after everything was shut down um, a year ago and have raised about $2.5 million at this point. Most of that money went out to real people in real cash payments. So at the beginning of the um, crisis, we were just literally writing $500 checks to people who were of highest need because if you remember, and I'm sure you do, like there was no money flowing. No one had any, anything, no unemployment, no nothing. So just giving people 500 bucks to just get them by was, was our MO. And it was, it was a really interesting experience because you really get to the heart of like, this is what what helping actually looks like and it's not easy like you just kind of think like oh i'm just going to do this and it'll be simple it's super complicated you have to make choices and decisions and say a lot of times say this person and not that person and having to sort of live with that was very very stressful um so we spent a lot of money on that we've also spent a lot of money trying to raise awareness about where people can go to help um, and then we're investing the back half of the some of that funding into um, prosperity coaching, actually. So helping people to navigate out of this um, and navigate the crisis. So I'm sure you heard very sadly, and I, I've talked to people about this, and it's it's tragic because it coincided with kind of this media blitz forum about Mayor Michael Tubbs in Stockton losing his mayoral race. And I, I hear it's all it all goes back to Facebook. Everything goes back to Zuckerberger. He is the problem. I mean, when are we going to figure out that we just need somebody to, call Mark? <laughs> we just need to take him down. No, I'm 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 not saying that, Mark. I promise. Um, but what I. What he was trying in Stockton with the guaranteed income is an interesting thing. And, you know, I, I, there's obviously a good amount of skepticism about it as a kind of solution. Uh, what is, does the United Way have a stance on these kind of uh, approaches to dealing with poverty in the kind of a guaranteed income way? Or is it something that you guys kind of stay away from because it's, you know, it's so because we don't want to do anything too controversial. Yeah. And then came Lindsay. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so I would say a couple things. One is, is that we're involved in a huge movement in Fresno called Fresno Drive. That's all about economic equality. Um, the, the initiative that I am working on is um, uh, wealth creation for uh, neighborhoods of color. And we had a lot of conversation about guaranteed income. Here's what we know for certain. And this comes from economists, not just from Lindsay Callahan's gut. Um, we know that the best way to fight poverty and to change the trajectory of struggling families is cash. It's simple. But we are so mistrusting and i get why like i dealt with thousands of people in this community during the COVID 19 crisis i understand why we're skeptical about it and we don't trust each other but cash is 
the best solution to solving poverty. Give, give me the money, let me make the decisions about it. And that will give, and, and there's a lot of psychology around the whole thing, but just the basic economics is pretty simple. Um, but back to why people don't like it is because I don't trust you with $2,000. And like, what are you really going to do with the $2,000? What the studies have shown is that for, for parents, what we tend to do with that extra income is invest it back in our kids, right? So I'm buying a laptop for my kid. I, and we know this from our tax experience. So we're big advocates for the California Earned Income Tax Credit, which is basically supports working poor. And most of my clients who come in to get their taxes done, who qualify for this, use that money to fill gaps in their, to make up the difference, right? And many times the moms will tell me, I bought, I was able to finally buy new shoes for my kid, right? I was able to, and so it goes back into the family and, and back into an investment in themselves too. So I got a car so that I could actually drive to my job. Like it's not, this isn't rocket science and, and we all like cash, but we don't trust each other with it. That's the problem. It's horrible. I mean, it, it's a political discourse that's been around for a long time. It started unfortunately in the eighties with someone who was president who actually, um, you know, I, I, you know, I occasionally get angry at Ronald Reagan for, he's like the, the father I didn't have that I get angry at, you know, kind of at, at certain points in the day. And I was reading, there's this really great, you know, I'm a school teacher and we're doing a bunch of stuff on Black History Month. And I was reading this, I mean, not to my kids because, you know, I'm sure I'd get some phone calls about it, but I was reading this new graphic novel that came out, I think two years ago about Black Panthers. And I forgot all the stuff that he did with, uh, you know, <laughs> anyway, long story short, People, people are mistrustful because we have this political discourse that everyone that gets money from the government is up to no good. And, and you're just going to put it up your nose or something. Right. And, and be, let's be clear about your Reagan point that Ronald Reagan was actually the president when the earned income tax credit came through. So there was an understanding that this was how we do business. So this is actually uh, this, this whole concept. We all get it. We just aren't quite sure how to make it happen. I think the trick with that stuff is, right, is getting people to see with just hard data that it does make a difference. And it's as simple as input output. And, and, and if, you also think, if you also think about the way we value time, and, you know, when people who have means, middle class or above, sort of, we, we invest our money in things that will save us time. And mm -hmm. what we do to people who don't have means is basically devalue their, their time. And there are lots of ways that this happens. And, but one way is with support service, government supportive services, where we basically just create all kinds of hoops for people to jump through and say like, well, like you're poor. So yeah, like you've got to do all of these things to get this other thing where you and I would never do those things because when we calculate it in our heads, we realize, well, I'm going to end up spending all of this time doing that thing for what amounts to almost nothing and it's not worth it. Yes. And, you know, so just the mentality of how we approach providing services and support has to change. We, we really changed. One of the things that we changed early on was 
um, the way we do tax services. And it's tax time, everyone. It's That's my favorite time of the year. <laughs> so we do thousands of taxes for free every year. And we, we love it. It's, it's a great program, our free tax prep program. But we were approaching it in this way where we, we loved having people stand in line to get their taxes done. And what that meant was because you were getting it done for free, I want you to stand in line for two and a half hours Mm. and you know in february or march and whereas like i would never consider sending someone down to my building to stand in line and to get their taxes done so we switched from that to an appointment-based system and now a drop-off system which is how i get my taxes done right like i take mm -hmm. it to the accountant drop it off and then they call me when it's done and i go back and pick it up it's like 20 minutes not five hours and because the, the and what we're also doing is not just devaluing people's time, you're actually devaluing the product, right? My tax services aren't, are free to you, but they're not free. <laughs> they cost me about $75 per tax return that we produce. So I'm actually telling you that this thing that you're getting doesn't have as much value because it's free, but it's not really right. So it's, it's just a mindset thing that we need to shift as a community and how we approach things like that. That's such a great topic to talk about. I mean, the value of, of, of time and money and, you know, the one area that I'll say that um, I have a debate with my wife over is, um, is me and Ed's pizza because she's convinced that there's this one me and Ed's that does it better. And so I end up having to drive 25 extra minutes to get <laughs> the correct pizza. Um, but that's, you know, not less serious than, yes, I think what, what is the actual time value of some of these things and what's the opportunity cost that they're trading off in order uh, to get the thing that's kind of free for them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but it's, it's not free because they're, because their currency is the, is the time, right? Exactly. Not the money. So it's, it's complicated. Let's, uh, let's talk about volunteerism, um, which is uh, something that I, I'm really curious to talk to you about, um, because I know that a lot of organizations uh, rely on volunteers uh, to get a lot of the work done. Um, what, is, what, what would you say is the state of volunteerism? Are people volunteering as much now as they used to? Um, obviously, pandemic has changed the uh, equation for volunteers, but um, just in general, what's your... Well, I have to, full disclosure, the governor just appointed me to the California Volunteers Commission, so... Okay, here we yeah. go. <laughs> Here's the mission statement, everybody. Let's hear it. <laughs> so I'm now a California Volunteers Commissioner, so I, I've got to, I've got to right. do, like, I'm getting a Lay little sweaty about, like, repping for this right now. On the, okay, on the well, I'm going to record this Gettysburg Address right now. Go ahead. <laughs> So I, I would say, you know, for, for me personally, my, I've had like a really kind of interesting interaction with volunteerism. I, I think that as being in the nonprofit field for as long as I have, you sort of were like, when you're talking about volunteering, like that's what I, that's actually what I do, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that's my job. Um, but, you know, I, I am a past president of the Junior League of Fresno, which is an organization all about not just volunteerism, but also promoting women. Um, my parents are avid, former educators, but avid volunteers in their 70s and 80s. And I've seen kind of firsthand what volunteering can do, um, and but also understand the complexities of it, which is mm -hmm. part of the reason that I'm so enjoying this commission appointment. What, in terms of just like, 
in general, um, I would say that we have, we live in a community that is incredibly generous. Um, and that's part of what I love about Fresno is that we have a level of generosity. Um, we help each other out. That's sort of what the heart of volunteerism is. The pandemic has created a lot of like different interactions on, on all of this. One is that, um, well, I'll also say that it, it's what, where I think volunteerism is going is, is sort of what we were talking about, about the difference between charity and philanthropy. And that going into the space of trying to create whatever I'm giving with my time, being a lasting change, and also being more like in, in my wheelhouse. So that, you know, if, if I'm an accountant and that's my passion and I love numbers, I'm not spending a lot of time ladling soup, but I'm spending time maybe helping with numbers. And right. like the need for volunteerism in those types of spaces is huge because that doesn't get the same level of attention as the more like frontline volunteering, but it's actually like tends to actually have a higher level of value to, to it. So part of what we're really envisioning at United Way is making sure that our our campaign partners, our businesses have a place where they can plug people into where their passion is. And sometimes that matches what your job is and sometimes it doesn't, but you're much more likely to sort of have that sticking point when you're doing what you're passionate about when you're volunteering. For COVID, what we're finding is that we're trying to be creative about having these uh, virtual volunteer opportunities. Um, which has actually been driven a little bit more by what I was just saying about finding that kind of passion match. And, you know, so doing things, making phone calls or, you know, doing things, doing mentoring over the phone. Um, I'm also a member of Mentor California and trying to amplify mentoring in California. And so, you know, connecting with people virtually, but, you know, it, it's a challenge and we're, we're all a little weary, right? So not a lot of us have much more to give, especially those of us who are kind of having to go into work every day and, and deal with the, with the crisis. Um, but the system, this is a really good time to be kind of rethinking and rebuilding the system. If you haven't noticed, I'm very much sort of like, a system thinker like i think more about what how it all works than the like specifics of what's going on really close up and making sure that we are you know have a good way to get people into volunteer opportunities even when you bring volunteers in so i have a whole team of americorps right now um, who are going to be working on the creek fire and working on tax prep but that doesn't happen without an investment, right? I'm paying both for their time. It's super cheap and they are like doing God's work, but it, we also have to supervise them. So organizations that want volunteers actually have to have structure already in place to even accept volunteers because volunteers don't come completely trained and like ready to go out of the box. And so we really have to make sure that whatever we're putting out there is, is actually kind of either plug and play 
or that the system is ready to support it so that you are actually effective in the volunteer opportunities. So those are kind of, that's kind of my, my thoughts about it. I think that volunteer coordinators are underrated in what they do. And a good volunteer coordinator doesn't just say, okay, here's the jobs. You take this one, you take this one, you take this one. They actually get to know their volunteers and like, you know, shameless plug for something that I do, um, which is, um, I took me a long time to do this. And I, God, I love the Fresno County Library. I love them. I'm their most dedicated volunteer, but it took me forever to get in to teach citizenship classes at the, at the public library because it was a matter of figuring out who's the person that knows what this is that I can talk to that has enough clout to start a thing to get me with the right resources and blah, blah, blah. And right. it, it took a long time. And Deborah Bernal at the library is a wonder, she's the literacy coordinator for Fresno County. She's wonderful. And it took me a long time for me to like, talk to someone at the front desk to finally get to Deborah, yeah. you know? And I think having that person, like you're saying, at, who has, who's at 10,000 feet, they can say, all right, here's all the needs, here's what we have, and here's the description of these assets that we have, because volunteers are assets, right? And figuring out the correct, not the easiest, because I think there's a temptation to just say, oh, we've got bodies with pulses, let's put them in, in the soup line. But to actually go that next step and figure out that, Joe's an accountant, Sarah's a doctor. Yeah. That's, that's not easy. It's not easy. And, you know, and so we, you know, we have our free tax program is completely driven um, and staffed by, by volunteers. Um, we have some co coordinators. That was kind of one of our lessons is that we actually had to have paid coordinators at the sites to oversee the volunteers. And so kind of to your point, like you need somebody to coordinate all of this. And then our goal is with prosperity coaching that, middle income and upper income people will actually lend their time and expertise and experience to being some having some part of this prosperity coaching whether it's being with you the whole time or maybe i just talked to you about real estate right and i give you a little advice about real estate how invaluable would that be to for someone who is trying to traverse into uh, prosperity to have someone volunteer to be their financial guide, right? right? I mean, that's that's kind of the, and, and to your point, like about, you know, finding that place where you could teach the classes, that's the more lasting impact that we want to leverage for volunteers because frankly, it's much more meaningful and you're gonna come back for that. Yeah, and it's, but it is a hard, it is a hard place, right? Because you could have, you could have Joe, Joe the MD who loves plants, like plants are his passion. So he gets off work, He's like, you know, watering his sagos and I, I guess you don't water sagos. He's watering his fiddle leaf every two weeks or whatever. And um, he would probably be a lot more useful giving medical advice and volunteering in a clinic and a lot less useful helping people with horticulture. Right. But Joe is really passionate about his plants. So in that situation, do you try to talk Joe into, hey, Joe? You have $300,000 worth of education here. You should probably use that. You have, you have a bunch of YouTube education about plants, which I respect. It's admirable, but we, we want, I mean, you're, it's impact here, Joe. You know what I mean? Right. But it's hard to have that conversation with people because they, they, they think they know what they want and they think they already know when they walk in the door to volunteer. Here's what's best. I already know what's best. Let me tell you. Yeah. And it's the same way that you convince middle schoolers to do what they need to do, right? Exactly. Just... <laughs> 
persuasion. But exactly, our but, jobs are very similar. <laughs> but I'm going to make I'm going to make this a simple either or question. Do you encourage Joe to kind of lean away from his passion to something that's more useful, uh, knowing that it might be like oh, this is like an extension of work, or do you encourage Joe? Well, you know, let's combine plants and mindfulness, or combine plants and like you'll take people's heart rates as you show them how to plant something. Right, exactly, right. So let's, you can do the horticulture, but you need to be talking to people about healthy habits, right? Like right, you do both right. And. right, well, let's finish today by talking about books. Um, so these books can go any direction. What are some books that have been influential with you? Um, and it could be related to United Way, or it just could be in general, uh, books that have been impactful for you. Um, so, gosh, um, I love books. I actually dream of being a writer. So I consume a lot of books. Um, I have been, so I have two. One is um, called Whistling Vivaldi. It is, a, I don't, it's, it's an incredibly interesting book that I read when I was, my, my board had given me several weeks off to kind of as a mini sabbatical after the George Floyd murders. And I spent, I was able to spend a lot of time just reading um, about anti-racism and social justice and all that. This was one of the best books that I read. The idea behind it is um, that when we, if, when women go to take a math test, if we suggest to them that women aren't expected to do very well on math, they actually perform worse than if we tell them nothing. And so the whole idea, it's, it's sort of education-based, but it's, I think it's true about just in general, that it, and it cuts across all different kinds of affiliations from race and ethnicity to gender to even where you live geographically, that this sort of like power of suggestion, what it does to our minds and what it does to our psyche, and the Whistling Vivaldi part was all about like presenting this sort of version of yourself that you think is expected. Um, and so the, the, the story goes that as this person was, this black man was walking down the street, noticed that people were crossing the street to get away from him, eventually started Whistling Vivaldi. And as soon as people were cued to that, they suddenly felt like you must be a safe person. And so it's all about the psychology of the cues of stereotypes and things like that. Fantastic read. Um, the other book that I would say is, was really, has been influential to me in the last year or so, it, what is called Essentialism. Um, and it's really focused on how this, how the power of choice and what we do on a daily basis and this drive around busyness is and saying yes and which i'm totally like a people pleaser so i tend to just want to be accessible and say yes to everything that that is actually destroying our ability to be effective and to um really be kind of be strategic right and i've I've kind of been taking this on in my role as CEO and moving away from having to sit at in every single meeting to being more strategic about the decisions that I make in, in my daily life. And it takes much a lot more like brain power to decide what you're going to do and not do than to just say yes. Um, so it's been a, it's a definitely a stretch, but I highly recommend it for anyone who feels completely overwhelmed by their their job and their experience because it's really just about your approach. I hate read that book 
hate read it because I am totally scatterbrained. Say yes to everything. There's books everywhere. There's five, there's 50 projects that are in my head that are circling through it all the time. And I hate read it because it's probably good for me. Mm-hmm. And I, and I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to learn about no, I've heard of it and I'm trying to learn about <laughs> it. Um, it's, it's just a, such a foreign concept to me because I, and I don't know if, because you were saying you also struggle with the no word. Um, you know, for me, whenever I say no, what I, what I feel like I'm doing is I'm closing like a potential universe, you know, an opportunity, a possibility, like whatever door, whatever that, that door had, had open for me that I could step through into this new thing that's closed and it's gone and I'm losing this. And it's the FOMO thing. It's, but it's more than the FOMO because it's just like, it's not like missing a party, but it's missing an opportunity. opportunity. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's such a hard mindset to get past and get over. Um, but you know, what you're doing and what I learned from that book was I'm closing doors behind me when I step through that door. Exactly. And that was a hard lesson. It's not an easy lesson to learn that. And I think a lot of people, especially people that are kind of in my domain, which is, you know, education or creativity or whatever, mm-hmm. it's really easy to get overwhelmed with projects yep. um, because yeah. it's so tempting. The world's got all these shiny objects, right? <laughs> So in your name, Jordan, come, come on, come on. I I know, I know it's constant. And I, but I, I have gotten better in thinking about what I'm losing, you know, and thinking about what I'm, what I'm saying, who I'm also saying no to when I say yes to you. And that was my lesson too. I told, I absolutely hate Reddit. I read, Reddit, it, read it. I did not want to read it. I was fighting it every step of the way. And then finally it clicked and I was like, oh, this is actually your problem. <laughs> That's yeah. why you don't want to read this book because you don't want to let anything go. Like just yes. let go. Well, I will, I will give you a book recommendation that I just finished, um, which is, it's called Messy. Oh. And it makes the case that Messy, uh, I think it's, let me find the author. Um, I should know it, I just finished it. Um, it is basically an argument that uh, Tim Harford um, and the, the sub title is the power of disorder to transform our lives. So I'm not trying to undercut your mission to be more minimal, but I'm also (laughs) saying that there is some benefits to a little bit of chaos because some of those connection points that you would make wouldn't be there if, you know, because one of the things in that book, and I will, I will say this and then leave it be is they, one of the, one of the anecdotes he gives is about studies they did about desks and people who like to keep their desks really clean and neat and orderly. Um, and they found that a mess that you created is a more productive workspace for you than someone coming in and cleaning your desk for you. So the mess oh, of your I own creation, that. <laughs> right? And, but, but like we transform our, our office spaces to be like little Zen gardens. But like, I, I really yeah, I do think that there's some benefit to the, a, a slight mess, you know, a slight mess. I don't know. It's like the people that organize all their stuff in like neat folders, but then never actually look through those folders. And you're just like, what are you doing with your time? Why are you doing that? No, I I organize my email by deletion. (laughs) Yes. Right. I, I mean, you know, there's all these people that are trying to organize this, but to be honest, guess what? I just go to the search bar at the top and I search the person's name and then it's there. Game changer. Is it faster? It's definitely faster than sorting through a tree diagram of folders that I've created yeah. on my desktop. 
Yeah. It's absurd. Anyway, <laughs> we should do a whole nother one just about organization, but I appreciate you talking with me. And I, I love this conversation. I think, you know, there's a lot in here that uh, can apply to a lot of different people doing things in Fresno. Where can we find out about what you guys are up to at United Way Fresno Madera? So we're all over everything, uwfm.org. If you want to look deeper into the work, some of the work that we're doing, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, United Way, Fresno, and Madera. We post a lot. We have tons of videos on YouTube. So if you want to learn more about prosperity coaching, our COVID work, our Creek Fire work, all of that is on our YouTube channel. And, you know, we're in, you can, everyone can always reach out directly to me too. I'm not hard to find, so. Yep, Thanks for having me. This was really great. Awesome. Thanks. Fresno's best. Thanks for listening, everybody. Stay tuned for our next episode. We will be interviewing City Councilman Tyler Maxwell. Until next time.